0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond.
1: Hi, I'm Shivaglani. We're going a bit off the beaten path on Raise the Line today. Instead of talking to a medical school dean, clinician, startup CEO, or edtech leader, we're joined by Scott Carney, who has created a unique path of his own as an investigative journalist, anthropologist, and author. You may be familiar with his New York Times bestseller, What Doesn't Kill Us?, his most recent book, The Wedge, or his earlier works revealing some shocking truths about the worlds of organ procurement and adoption. His next book, The Vortex, about the deadliest storm ever, is coming out in March. His reporting has also appeared in many outlets, including Wired, NPR, Mother Jones, and National Geographic. And he also created and runs Foxtopus Inc., a multimedia company involved in publishing audiobooks, podcasting, and other platforms. Oh, and also Cat Wrangling. This is a personal treat for me as Scott's work has been highly influential on my own habit formation and understanding of the human body and what we're capable of. So, Scott, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hopefully a lot of our audience is already familiar with your work. I've talked about it before in other contexts, but for their benefit, can we start by hearing more about what got you interested in investigative journalism?
0: Yeah, the story is sort of funny. Like, you know, I was a, a kid who went abroad in college to India. I lived there for a year and I was like, this is great. It's so chaotic. And I loved how the, just like intense every moment is in India. And I wanted to, you know, essentially I just wanted to keep on having adventure in my life. Let's just be real. I, you know, 20 20 year old kid, what, what am I going to do? I want to travel. and uh, And I wanted to find a way to like make it. A real career. And so I bumped around in academia for a while. I was like, hey, the way to travel and have fun is to be a professor, which is not true because when you become a professor, you're basically just fighting tenure committees for like 10 years. And I'm way too ADD just to focus on one subject. So I dropped out of the PhD program and started writing stories for like local weekly newspapers. I think my first article was about joining a clinical trial at a place in Madison, Wisconsin for the erectile dysfunction drug Levitra where I was like locked in a room with I think it was about 30 dudes on penis poppers checking out like what the maximum livable dose is like it was that first stage of the human trials like what amount of Viagra will kill you I was in that trial but I I didn't die so that was cool Um, so that was like sort of a funny sort of experiential story and it was invigorating. And then I moved to India shortly thereafter, after I sort of got some traction. I was starting to write for Wired, for NPR, for Mother Jones. And I moved to the South Indian city of Chennai, where I discovered all of the women in a village right next door to where I was living had sold their kidneys. And I was just in the middle of this enormous organ trafficking scandal. And I was one of the first reporters on the scene And it's just sort of been off to the races since then. I'm
1: like, oh my God, I'm going to just go find out why this is even happening. That's incredible. And anyone who reads your books knows like that curiosity that naturally just comes from you is permeating through the books, like kind of the threads Mm -hmm. you pull on, even the wedge, which I most recently, I read it kind of late to the game. I read it in January and all the things you have done personally from climbing Kilimanjaro in shorts with Wim Hof to the the MDMA trial. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to start. By like just understanding, like, how do you come up with your guess like, Is it just you pull on threads and you do a deep dive, or like, is there something where you have like this massive bucket list of a thousand things you want to do, and then some mm-hmm. of those become books, some of those become articles, some of them, just... you know,
0: coming from anthropology? So, I did a lot of anthropology, you know, and there's this idea. There's two ways to sort of approach any anthropological subject. They're emic and edic, which are just stupid buzzwords. Emic is like from the inside, like you get involved in the culture and then you sort of like understand where you are. And there's edic, which is from the outside, the objective view. How are the natives doing? Right. And my, and there's benefits to both sides. I don't want to knock either side, but my feeling is that there's no such thing as objectivity, especially when dealing with humans, right? Especially dealing with like social interactions. There's an objective world out there. It's just how you access it is contextual. And so when I do reporting, I always acknowledge that I am in it and I am sort of affecting the scene that I'm in. So it's hard to sort of like extract me, but which also allows me to have like some pretty adventurous things. Like I'm going into these situations and it's just through my experience as the writer that you sort of can understand. You can decide whether you like me or you trust me or not, but you can also sort of like see how I'm interacting in that space. Your other question is like, how do I choose these topics? I feel like I'm intensely ADD. Like I am pulling on my thoughts are all over the place all the time. And and I get fascinated by something and I absorb everything I can about it. And then I vomit it onto a page as quickly as possible so that I can move on to the next thing, the next shiny object that's like sort of flits across my eyeballs. And so a lot about this job is both careful research but it's also being like I have to move on to the next subject because there's too much out there that I want to look
1: at. Let's go into actually the uh this is a question for later but I'm going to move it up earlier because your book's coming out in a month from when mm-hmm. we're recording this on climate change and the deadliest storm. You know, that is definitely a departure from the last two books on kind of the limits of human endurance and resilience. Let's talk about that. Like what got you interested in I mean, obviously climate change and can you tell us a bit about the book? And then maybe if there are any applications for that book to you know, human health, clearly there are. And I'd love to hear your take on it. There are definitely ways that all of my books are related. You know, I think one of the last
0: lines in what doesn't kill us, I talk about how our world is changing and how like cold, this idea of cold is maybe gonna go away first for many people. Like your winters are gonna get shorter. You're not gonna have the seasonal adaptations. So that's sort of part of it. But I'll say I actually started writing and getting interested in what the book that became The Vortex before I even met Wim Hof. So it it actually predated in many ways, um, all of that stuff. It started when I was hanging out in Bangladesh doing a story for foreign policy about this 13-year-old girl who got shot on a border wall between India and Bangladesh. And India had built this whole wall around all of Bangladesh. If if you can think of the map of Bangladesh, India's like hugging it. It's got this arm around it, basically, with a little bit of Myanmar over by the fingers. But India built this wall because they were worried about climate refugees. And I was like, well, why would they do that? Like, We know Bangladesh is like, going to sink, right? We all sort of heard that story, but like, why would you go through the efforts of building a wall? And so I tracked that back to this like historic storm where 500,000 people died in the storm. There was a war and then millions and millions and millions of people crossed the border over to India. And, you know, if you can think about how America responded to a few thousand immigrants coming over in migrant caravans. Think about what a nation would do with millions crossing the border. And so that's why India has built this wall. And they've armed it with like these, I mean, they kill a lot of people. You know how America arrests a lot of people. These people shoot a lot of people. So the the story of the vortex is a story of like how that war happened. And then we're tracing it forward to say like, here's where we are now. And it's all an allegory for climate change around the world because as the earth heats, we're going to have more storms, just sort of like the fact of the climate. And as you get more of storms in more vulnerable areas, you roll the dice every time as to whether or not this will affect political systems in the same way it destroys beach houses and villages. Many of those storms and other climate disasters have like massive political ramifications.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the drumbeat has become louder. I think there were like 18 multibillion dollar storms just last year. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite spots, not too far from where you are in Denver, is, is Tahoe. And Tahoe, mm-hmm. I was there when the fires were coming through. Then I was there when the blizzards came through in December. And it was like mm-hmm. kind of crazy. So I, I actually just pre ordered the book while we were talking. Nice. About weekend, so I'm excited about it. That's a sale for me. That's like, I, that's like $2 <laughs> in my pocket in like a few months. You know? In a few months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you do it because you love it. And so. <laughs> You know, our audience is a lot of current and future healthcare professionals. So they're very much science based, right. evidence based. Some of them are anthropology Good. backgrounds. Would love to hear, you know, when you went out to meet Wim Hof for What Doesn't Kill Us and writing that story, you were going out there to debunk him, right? Like, you thought yes. it was like kind of a cult leader and stuff. Now, can you take us back to that moment of like when you first started? experiencing things yourself where you're like, wow, there's actually more here that we, Western medicine, or we just don't understand about the body. Right. And and like, what are some of the most surprising things that you came uh, to realize? Mm -hmm. And then what are the lasting habits you have as a result of all the investigative journalism you've done? I'm going to have to answer this question in two
0: phases. One is Scott Carney in 2011, when I first heard about Wim Hof and first met him. And then we will need to fast forward to Scott Carney in 2022, where my, some of my opinions have changed now, you know, back to 2011, I had heard about Wim Hof. I saw like this photo of this like mid fifties guy sitting on an iceberg. I was like, Getting out of shape. And I was like, oh man, this guy's got something that I don't have. And and he was not famous then, really, at all. He had done like a couple like media stunts. He was more like a clown, like the ice clown at best. And I was the first journalist to go there and write about him seriously. So I flew out to Poland and I had just written a major article that then became a book called The Enlightenment Trap about people who. Or pursue superpowers, and then that sort of idea of like yoga making you like a superhuman, and you know we see superhuman like language on Instagram stuff all the time. How that sort of drive sort of towards transcendence and almost magic makes people crazy and sometimes gets them killed. So I wrote the, did this a whole book about that, and I was very skeptical of gurus who are offering superpowers. When I met Wim, I, my commission was basically to debunk him. It's like, look at this guy selling this crazy idea that you can control your immune system. You can stand on icebergs forever and blah, blah, blah. But as an anthropologist who dives in, who actually tries things and just doesn't look from the outside, I decided I had to try his method. And one thing about Wim, which is so amazing is how earnest he is, right? He believes this to his soul. And you're like, all right, you're in I'm going to go in. I'm going to give you this much leeway to try it out. And lo and behold, it just works, right? The breath work, you know, I do the breath work and all of a sudden I'm holding my breath for three minutes at a time. I do more push-ups than I'd ever done before while holding my breath. And over the course of a week, I do all of these ice stunts where I end up climbing up a mountain in my skivvies and I'm hot the whole way up. And I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. Is this prana coming down from heaven or is there like an anthropological biological explanation. And being science-based, I'm very interested in the science. And this was sort of before a lot of the immunological research had been published, although they were conducting those trials around the same time that I was there. It turns out exposing yourself to elements of various sorts, as long as it's not like damaging you, it it really does make you stronger. It allows you to, to increase your threshold of resilience And, you know, there's these autoimmune reversion things that are really cool. I will say that once I started doing the Wim Hof method, I used to get canker sores all the time, which are like these sort of mouth ulcers that just suck. I mean, they're not lethal, but they just suck. And I would think of myself as a canker survivor, couldn't smile or laugh or anything like that. After I did the method, and I just sort of kept up with it. I never got them again. And I was like, oh, my God, like it has this like real tangible effect. It always, like weirdly, more than anything else, that's what keeps me coming back to the Wim Hof method is like, you know, you'll lose a habit for a little while for whatever reason. And you're like, ah, I'm not going to do something else. And then like a canker sore, be like, hello, I'm thinking about showing up, you know, those prodromal early symptoms. And I'm like, oh, got to get back into it. And I do the method and it goes away fast. And so I know I I get this like sort of stick always pushing me back into the method, and that's been that's been great. Now fast forward to two thousand two, sort of twenty twenty two. Scott, I initially wrote that book about Wim Hof and was like, he's an amazing guy, and like it's not a cult. It's actually there's real science. And I will say that if I wrote What Doesn't Kill Us Today, after Wim Hof has risen to like this international celebrity that he is now, I think my book would have been a little more critical of the way that fame has framed the Wim Hof Method in the present day. It has become very over-masculine. It has become very anti-science where Wim used to get all these studies done about him. And it was like very science-based. We injected people with endotoxin. We have this data, we have numbers. We have like real people with PhDs looking at it. Now it's like Gwyneth Paltrow, Joe Rogan. It's like fame has sort of taken over what the Wim Hof Method is. And it's actually eclipsing science. And there's a, there was a video posted three or four days ago on Instagram of Wim Hof walking on water, quotes around that. Like, there's like a little platform under the surface of water, but he's walking out there like Jesus. And I'm like, whoa, this is not the image of science that I have. So I have this very like conflicted, feeling about the Wim Hof method lately, just because it's turning away from the, its scientific roots, which are there and it works into this sort of more celebrity focused sort of floofiness, which I really don't like
1: right now. That's it's really interesting. It's like going back to some of the things you were talking about in the enlightenment trap in terms of you know, mm-hmm. superpowers and people may pushing themselves. But it has, I mean, your book was one of the first, if not the first I had read that kind of now there's a bunch of books that talk about this type of stuff, right? There's Stealing Fire. James Nestor is going to be on the podcast talking about breath, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, is it all just breath holes like Wim Hof or do you do other kind of prana, pranayam, and breathing? What are some of the things, I mean, this is where the wedge was really interesting because it came out nine years after, I guess, you first met Wim and the wedge mm-hmm. expands upon that and talks about right. psychedelics and all these things that are now big in mental health. Mm-hmm. And so we've mm-hmm. had folks from Calm, we had the chief medical officer of Calm, we had the chief medical officer of Cerebral come on, many of whom are involved in psychedelic research as well and clinical trials, right. things that you've experienced. You know, What are you most excited about as far as, you know, the next decade in terms of physical health, building resilience? Do you think it's going to be psychedelic mm. renaissance? Do you think it's going to be a breathing renaissance? Like, what, what are you most excited about for our audience to think about when they're seeing patients or themselves trying right. to be more resilient? So one of the things that I, I think is really good about
0: psychedelic research is that they're doing real science on it. They have control groups, they have the whole thing, like they're, they're really trying to understand the benefits of psychedelics, which are there. But I think that there's a there's a problem in this in the way we frame psychedelic research where we say look we have a depressed person we have a patient with a symptom and that we give them this chemical right mdma or psilocybin or you know whatever or ketamine whatever and we do this chemical and we give it to them and then later they are better or worse right we have this sort of the clinical design study but for me what is missing in a lot of the way that the clinical trials are framed is that it's not the chemical that changes the person. It's the experience that the person on the chemical has, which changes the person. I mean, I think ketamine may, may be possibly different. I'm going to put that in a little box because I don't, I haven't fully studied ketamine. But I will say that the reason why when I've done say mushrooms or MDMA, the reason why I've had such interesting breakthroughs is because of the thoughts that have emerged in my mind that then I remember and I go back to those thoughts. And a lot of scientific research is missing this subjective component, which is absolutely critical. The reason why you're you're not depressed anymore isn't because of chemical change, because you realize that you're mortal and you only have so much time in your life. And oh my God, I have to go like carpe diem. Like that was the thing that, that flipped them out of the depression. And the chemical maybe opens the door to that realization, but there is really this chewing that goes back and forth. And I'm not 100% certain that the way we frame clinical trials, the way we talk about psychedelics, uh, at least in the clinical literature, that it really answers that subjective component. We treat it like a blood pressure drug in a lot of these trials because they want these sort of very discrete endpoints. And it's really hard to quantify the reason why I had to say carpe diem at the end of my trip into the universe. (laughs) So... That is something that I I hope does get explored more in the clinical setting. There are certainly just amazing novel uses. I mean, in, in the chapter where I did MDMA with my wife, so that's the street drug ecstasy, I had two clinicians come in and observe us and sort of like they were gonna guide the session. And the amazing thing about MDMA is it sort of makes, makes everything happy. Like, you know, if you touch your skin, your skin feels amazing. You want to dance or whatever. But if, if you're actually just talking to somebody, it's like you cannot, almost chemically cannot react negatively to someone's statement. So if I said to my wife, you know what? I hate your mother. She's not going to say well, I hate your mother. And like, we blow up and have that whole fight. Instead, she'd be like, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, these things work this way. And then you have this like very productive conversation where everything has to end on a positive note because you're dumping all of those feel-good chemicals into your brain. That session, when we sort of reconnected with the psychiatrist afterwards, who had never actually seen an MDMA session before, they had just sort of read about them, but they were both gobsmacked because they said it was like, watching six months of couples therapy play out over the course of six hours or whatever the the half-life of that drug was. And it's it's sort of like this really neat shortcut to therapy. And it's really important to say that it is both the subjective experience, you know, negative statement said by, by me or my wife, and then the positive response allows you to have this very useful therapeutic outcome where that played out in our relationship for the next year. We were able to go back to some of those
1: tools and be like, oh, okay, I understand how this works. That's awesome nuance. And I, I think two people you may know or uh, love to connect you at some point. One is, so my board member at Osmosis a guy named Mitch Rothschild. His wife, Rachel Yehuda, is one of the NIH clinical trial sites. She runs, she's a National Academy of Medicine psychologist, running MDMA-assisted therapy for veterans with PTSD. Awesome. Right, so mm-hmm. that that whole concept of like, guided therapy sessions like you guys had like again one reason i love reading, reading your stuff is you have the science hat and then you you're in it and so you experience mm-hmm. it where you can talk meaningfully about both the research and then your own experience with it and you qualify it quite a bit by saying this is my experience and this is what the research mm-hmm. says so she and then one of my investors zishan Mohamedi at mbx capital his old thesis is around like for the psychedelic renaissance that's happening it's it's experiential it's exactly what you said where doesn't just a wonder drug like like a Like the Viagra drugs, which we talked about at the beginning Mm, of the podcast, it's the experience of like post-integration work, right? And revisiting Mm it. same with Wim Hof, right? Like you may not, like any method, it's not a magic bullet. It's, it sort of makes you have realizations on the drug that then eventually, that eventually if you integrate correctly, could be good. And that's the same you refer to in in the ayahuasca Mm -hmm. method that you were doing too. So Mm -hmm. where do you think, I mean, you've been covering this stuff for some time. Like, where do you think like Western medicine is with regards to accepting This stuff, and what do you think needs to happen? Part of my interest here is that we're seeing daily how many nurses and doctors are dropping out of the workforce with burnout and all these issues. They're getting PTSD. I mean, you can't be an ICU nurse or physician over the last two years without having some PTSD from like the thousands of people who've died in front of you, many of which were preventable. What kind of message would you want to get across to them, or where do you see the tides turning? Do you think we're going to be shut down again by the government, or do you think there's like (laughs) legit? stuff that's going to happen over the next 10 years. I'm asking you to prognosticate. but Well, I mean, you know, actually, funnily enough, one of the books that I'm working on is about the future of
0: Western medicine and Eastern protocols. And I think that we are seeing more integrative approaches across the board. And I think one of the very interesting questions, one that I really want to explore in the next book that I write is that, You know, we know Eastern medicine has some really nice benefits, right? And we know as well that Western medicine is freaking awesome. And you don't want acupuncture for your compound fracture, like at least not immediately. And the question that I often have is at what point is it right to switch paradigms from an Eastern approach you know, and I'm, I mean that very broadly, from this sort of complementary medicine models to the acute care that Western medicine is so amazing at. But you know, Western medicine's often understood that the ability to manage chronic illness is just not very good. We're not where we should be. We treat things with drugs that have side effects that the drugs decrease in efficacy, and you sort of like managing the symptoms. It's a big mess. It's not as clean as fixing a compound fracture, and. But some of that Eastern medicine is built entirely around the concept of working on chronic illnesses in the first place. And some of it's total bullshit. And some of it is actually really awesome. Like I found with Wim Hof Method, it's really awesome. It's really, really useful. It will not cure cancer, to my knowledge. It will not cure AIDS. But it's really good for anxiety. It's good for depression. It seems to help basically all autoimmune illnesses that I've come across And But at what point, the the question the physician, I think, needs to think is at what point do you want to switch paradigms? At what point do we say, okay, your Wim Hof method, yeah, keep doing that, sure. But now we really need to get you on some blood pressure medicine because you're going to die. And I don't know if that point is like defined, Like, like how do you find this sort of like gray area? I do think it's important not to just discount what people do on a daily basis to build their, to use an old term, their vital force, right? This is a word that we use in the 1800s. Like you build up your vitality, your overall health, so that your system could thrive versus Western medicine, might be more like scorched earth in a way. Oh, you've got a bacteria in your system. We're gonna just flamethrower all the bacteria in your body and then you're gonna be all right, which does work, right? And then you'll return to homeostasis afterwards. But those two approaches are like diametrically opposed. right? I can't build up my utter vitality and throw a flamethrower on my intestines at the same time. So how do we decide when that vital force method is now no longer worth it because you've gone into some sort of acute care where we need to do, to, to bring out the flamethrowers. And, and that's what I hope clinicians can think about better than I can because I'm just a guy who has some interesting thoughts. Like, you know,
1: I have so much respect for doctors and a lot of doctors are already thinking along these lines anyway. Like I'm not coming with anything new here. Well, no, I mean, I think, again, you brought it into focus in a way that has made it accessible and interesting to a whole generation. I mean, when I was in med school, we had three days on nutrition. That was it. Uh, (laughs) Three days on nutrition. And like, obviously, Hippocrates would roll over in his grave because, you know, he said, let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a that's also nuanced where even like Western psychologists like Carl Jung were anti yoga, not because they didn't believe in things like yoga as helping vitality, as you say. But because they believed in the Western hands, they would be abused in the way maybe Joe Rogan or Kim Kardashian abused the Wim Hof method. Who knows? And so, sure, that's really interesting. I know we're coming up in time, and I, you know, you have very nuanced thoughts. Two rapid-fire questions for you: One is obviously the vortex is coming out next month. What are you currently writing about that you're most excited about, or what what experience are you doing right now <laughs> that you wouldn't mind giving a preview to our audience about? <laughs> okay. It's just so funny because I have six books coming uh, in the works. I have the vortex
0: coming out. I'm working with my wife, who's a podcaster, and we're putting out a series of kids' books. One's about Bigfoot, the others about extraterrestrial life, where we try to k- take on these like bizarre and sort of fictional-ish topics, but then to apply science to them. So we use it to sort of like teach Bigfoot crazy, but let's talk about evolution. Like how would Bigfoot exist, right? Or, you know, space aliens. Are we visited by UFOs? Well, let's talk about the physics of what that is about. So that's like one section of my company, Fox to That's not, I'm sort of a co-author on that stuff. I have a book about that I'm, I'm just working on right now about Santa Ana, the guy who stormed the Alamo and killed all those Texans. And I want to write a, a biography of Santa Ana to talk about how like Mexico actually maybe should have been the superpower in North America. No, it shouldn't have been the United States. And by the way, those guys in the Alamo were just like slave trading assholes anyway. So who cares if they got massacred? I mean. I have a lot of different stuff coming out, coming down the pipeline.
1: Is the forward going to be written by Ted Cruz? Or
0: (laughs) my marketing plan is to get banned in Texas.
1: Easy, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, You know, the teaching, the the children's book education stuff is very resonant. We're a teaching company. You can see in my background here. You know, Mm -hmm. we love that kind of work. What else? Did you want to add anything else to
0: that? Yeah, and I'm working on another book about the future of medicine, which is the stuff that I was talking about. When do you switch? What is complementary medicine? What is the standard of care? Like, you know, I don't know, it, we're, we're playing with the title standard of care because it sounds so comforting. Oh, you're getting the standard of care here. So that is what you should get. But when you actually look at where that term comes from, it's an insurance term. It's like, this is the minimum you need to apply not to get sued. And so that's a very different concept when you walk into an office. And, and what does it mean that insurance defines medicine? You know, and there's all these problems. Like these people come to doctors and think they're scientists. <laughs> piffle. You're, I mean, there's some science involved, right? But, you know, if you look at like what Lester King used to, you know, wrote about like on medicine, the idea that it's really about a relationship between the doctor and the patient trying to figure out symptoms and signs. And there's so much subjectivity and outcomes that cannot be determined, but the Americans, we want answers, right? We want like certainty and medicine doesn't offer certainty. It doesn't Promise, like there's no scene where someone's like doc how much time do i have to live and you can go check a chart he's like oh well it's like 62 days this is like a like a fiction that hollywood comes up with but people believe that that's the way medicine should be so i want to sort of like examine
1: that fundamental relationship in yet another book that i'm writing we definitely have to bring you back on the podcast for that that could be its entire episode or, or more because that is like at the crux of art versus science it taught in medical schools we work with over 150 of them and like that nuance is missing and that nuance is also the reason i think general society has this issue with the infodemic which we talk right? all about a lot where you know yes western medicines said don't mask at the beginning of the pandemic and now it's like definitely mask and now it's don't mask again like things change and we don't know and people don't right. understand that nuance. They're looking at you know, people like Fauci as like the end all be all, but they don't know. They have a better sense than you do, but they, they don't actually know.
0: Yeah. I mean, the gray area is so important. Like we want to be so black and white in the world. Like we're right. And I can do 140 characters on Twitter. Or, it's 300. Now I can just destroy you. Right. It's like, it's like these like stupid conversations that we have in, in, in the world where we think, there is an answer to complex, nuanced, impossible-to-answer uncertainties, and it's like we're all children. It's it's like everyone is like a nine-year-old child who just wants their parents to tell them how the world really should work, and the parents, or the doctors in this case, have to create a convenient lie to make them sort of like follow in line with what the best possibility might be, and it's, you know, I don't have much faith for the future of the world, so, you
1: know, it's, we're all, we're all in it. together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. After reading like you've all know Harari books, I've lost a bit of faith too, but hopefully we'll see it. things turn around, there's obviously some bright spots. So my last question for you is what advice would you give to our audience? Many of them are just beginning their careers as healthcare providers Mm -hmm. or are in the field already, but you have such an interesting storied career. What advice would you give them about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? Be a dilettante. Hyper-specialization does not make you a happier person in
0: general. And can you imagine, what do you tell a doctor who's going into the field right now? It's like, get ready to hang out in front of a computer a lot more than you do in front of a patient. Like, I don't know, the whole reason why integrative medicine is amazing is not necessarily their theories are better. I mean, in some cases they may be, but it's because they hang out with patients more and there's less paperwork. So I don't know, go into integrative medicine so you don't have to do with paperwork. I mean, that here, there, there's my very specific
1: advice. <laughs> Well, again, I, w- I would say just even reading books like yours and being exposed to things that normally aren't taught in med school but should be or or could be. Then your upcoming book, which I think again we'll definitely have you back on the podcast if you're willing to join. It's super fascinating. Sure. So with that, Scott, thanks for taking more time than I allocated for your time. Uh, but really, again, excited to have you on. Excited about your all your writings. I read the vortex as I mentioned. So I'll, I'll ping you after I read that. But thanks so much for everything. You Love do. it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. It's a blast to chat with you. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more
0: information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.